acts of change in, a, in, in counseling that I really have enjoyed is from uh, Jim Logan's book, Reclaiming Surrender Ground. And in there, on page 38 through 42, he has the five elements of a victorious walk. Are you familiar with anybody else familiar with those? Okay, maybe some of you have read that. And I think this is a good, a good way to kind of have a, uh, a systematic <laughs> approach or concept or idea to the change process that people go through. Um, I believe it starts off with genuine repentance. Um, which he has there, and then taking background, what are those areas in which Satan has gained influence in my life through uh, lies and sin, tearing down the strongholds, then building truth, um, and then taking thoughts captive, and, and really doing some you know spiritual warfare, um, and uh, you know understanding that battle for the mind. So that's that's. Uh, a, a big part of that counseling discipleship process, I think that's important. Um, when it comes to surrendering to God, and again, some of this would be re- review for you. Um, those of you that have had Course 1 in my class on genuine repentance, um, this is uh, a large portion of that material. Is there anybody that hasn't heard this before in Course 1 from me? A couple of you. Anybody else? Um, I think one of the the things that we uh, really have struggled with um, is really understanding what true repentance is. Um, I think we I think we tend to I think we tend to want to think better of people just inherently. Uh, we want to um, give people the benefit of the doubt. And we as Christians are kind of told not to think negatively of people, right? So we tend to want to give people, maybe trust them maybe more than what we should, or kind of give them the benefit of the doubt, which is a good thing, um, but not all the time. Um, And it can lend to a bit of denial uh, creeping in our lives. Uh, um, So I think it's always important to look at Scripture uh, when it comes to understanding, uh, you know, where the truth lies. And uh, one of my favorite passages in understanding general repentance is in Second Corinthians uh, chapter 7. And uh, I'm going to start here in verse 8. Um, it's for, in just a lot Maybe I should just bring a little bit of background uh, here. Uh, Paul had written uh, a letter previously to the Corinthian church in which he addressed many issues that needed to be confronted in repentance. Uh, one particular one was a church discipline issue, um, an incestuous relationship. In fact, earlier in chapter 2 of Second Corinthians, um, that person had repented, and he encouraged the church there to receive them so that they wouldn't be frustrated. Um, and Satan would begin with an advantage. And then he goes on and talks about their response to some of the other issues. Verse 8, he says, For even if I made you sorry with my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it. 
But I perceive that the same epistle made you sorry, though only for a while. Now I rejoice, not that you were made sorry, but that your sorrow led to repentance. For you were made sorry in a godly manner, that you might suffer loss from us in nothing. For godly sorrow produces repentance that leads to salvation. And that word would be better translated deliverance. Um, because it's not talking about you know what we would look at many times we use the term salvation in terms of being regenerated or born again or being saved, but this is really talking about the freedom that comes from repentance from sin. And it says, not to be regretted, but the sorrow of the world produces death. And uh, um, I don't know how many of you remember when uh, uh, Bill Clinton at the was I think at a national prayer breakfast eventually. Um, confessed to having the relationship with Monica Lewinsky that he said like a year earlier that he didn't have. Everybody remember that? <laughs> well, I just drove by Hopewell, Arkansas yesterday. <laughs> and uh, speaking of the devil, no, I'm just kidding. And uh, <laughs> actually, I kind of like, I've, I've grown to like Bill Clinton over these years, actually. Uh, it's, and then somebody told me that Hillary had a spiritual awakening, so who knows what's going on there. But um, um, but it was interesting because the Indianapolis Star, which is the main paper in Indianapolis, called me that afternoon after Bill Clinton had, at the prayer breakfast had confessed that he had had sex with that woman. And, um, or I think he kind of redefined sexual things. But anyway, they kind of wanted my input. Input and in, you know on that situation as a counselor and as a Christian counselor, they went through the phone books of biblical counseling and called me, and they wanted to do a story on uh, Bill Clinton's confession. And uh, and I thought about this passage. Um, you know, I, I thought about you know, is he really repenting or is he sorry that he got caught? Um, godly sorrow leads, leads to repentance or deliverance and realizes they've sinned against the holy God. Um, or is it, you know, that he just sorry that he got caught and because of the consequences and all the, you know, and there was a lot of, uh, well, actually, eventually they tried to impeach him, right, uh, for some other types of things associated with his testimony. But, but you just guys remember all that mess, right? And then, so finally, you know, now he's coming clean, so to speak, it, at this national prayer breakfast, uh, and so I began to share with the reporter there, um, you know, kind of my thoughts on the issue based on this passage of scripture. You know, was it a was he sorry uh, that he sinned against God and he was wanting to come clean and truly repent and change? Because that was kind of the question that was posed to me. Do you really believe he's sincere? And I said, well, it kind of appears to me that you know maybe he uh, is sorry he got caught, uh, but I don't know. I, I can't judge the man's heart. But look at what truly, uh, true repentance, I just thought I'd share that since I just drove by Obog, Arkansas yesterday. Um, it says in verse 11, For observe this very thing that you sorrowed in a godly manner. This is what godly sorrow looks like. What diligence it produced in you. What diligence it produced in you. So when people are genuinely, genuinely repenting, there's a diligence there. What clearing of yourselves? So they want to make themselves right. 
What indignation? What fear? And that's reverence, reverential fear. What vehement desire? So you're talking about fear and indignation and diligence and vehement desire. There's a lot of description there of some pretty strong desire and emotion to change, isn't it? Um, it's really coming from the heart. What zeal, what vindication. In all things, you proved yourselves to be clear in this matter. They were willing to do whatever it took. Okay. Um, and that really is what genuine repentance is about, is people are willing to do whatever it takes. Um, to uh, come to that place of repentance. Now, unfortunately, uh, sin does impact us all. And uh, we were talking about, it, it to some length, uh, this lady who didn't want to forgive her husband. You know, a lot of that question, feedback and answer time there. Sin does impact us all. And uh, in many ways, uh, we have a difficult time going through times of suffering because of that. And again, when people are coming to us for counseling, they are suffering. But there needs to be a surrendering, really, to God. Not to say that it's not going to hurt, because it will hurt. Um, uh, but we can read here, and I'll start reading here in uh, verse 17. It says uh, that if we're children, of Romans 8, it says, If children, then heirs, heirs of God, join heirs with Christ. If indeed we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together. And I believe that we suffer with Christ whenever sin impacts our lives and, we're and we allow ourselves to feel the way he does about it. Okay. Um, and he says in verse 18, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. Then skipping to verse 29, it says, For the creation was subjected to futility. What does that mean? Basically, it means that the whole world and everything in the world has been impacted by the curse of sin. Not willingly. Not willingly. It wasn't, it's not our choice. See? That's what happens in abuse. You're sinned against, with, against your choice, against your will. So it impacts us. It says, but because of him who subjected it in hope, because the creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. And that's a process that's being taken place and eventually will come to fruition. And it says, for we know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs until now. But not only that, but we also who have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, eagerly waiting for the adoption and the redemption of our body. So we, as Christians, are groaning to be released from this pain and suffering. Okay. Sin impacts us all. And then it goes on and, and it talks about how the Holy Spirit will pray for us. And then in verse 28, it says, We know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according." to his purpose. And so sin does impact us all, and we have to learn how God wants to use that in our lives in suffering to bring us um, closer to him. 
And uh, unfortunately, people that do not suffer well in their Christian lives um, will get a victim mentality. And uh, I've kind of outlined that, and I think the perfect illustration is in Numbers 14. So some of you have heard this before, but I just want to do a quick review for those that haven't heard it. Numbers 14, those of you that might be familiar with that story, there were some spies sent out to the Promised Land. And they came back, and uh, the minority uh, was uh, Joshua and Caleb. They said, let's go for it. They had faith. they knew there was going to be some giants to kill and so forth, but uh, unfortunately, uh, the majority of them didn't want to go forward, and they came back with a negative report. And uh, many times in Scripture, we find that the majority is usually wrong. And, uh, and I contend that that's what happened the first Tuesday of this month as well. But anyway, some of you may have gotten that. Numbers 14... <laughs> Actually, I heard there was some some conservative Democrats. I guess there there was one guy, uh, in fact, quarterback. He's quarterback Tennessee. He's Schuler. I heard that the Republicans tried to recruit him to run for Congress. He's Baptist, apparently, and Christian and conservative, and and uh, he realized that if he ran as a uh, Republican, he'd lose because of the association with Bush and the Gulf War, which is really what this whole election was about. But um, so he so he said, I'll go run as a Democrat, <laughs> and I'll win. <laughs> and he ran as a Democrat, and he won. <laughs> so who knows what, what's going on anymore. But anyway, starting in verse 1, it says, uh, So all the congregation lifted up their voices and cried, and the people wept that night. Now, these aren't repentance tears, okay? These aren't, I'm feeling the pain that Jesus would feel type of tears. These are poor me tears. Okay? These are poor me tears. Um, and so, and this is what I, well, this is what I do when people are in pain uh, in my office and they're crying. Um, the pain in their heart will be one of three pains. They're, they're either going to be feeling the pain that Jesus would feel over the sin, um, or they're going to repent of their sin, or they're going to be poor me tears. Okay. Um, you don't want to give in to the poor me tears, but sometimes people think that all tears are poor me tears, but that's not the case. Um, but that's what these were. Okay, and it kind of gives us some more insight into that. Um, in verse 2, and it says, And all the children of Israel complained against Moses and Aaron. And that's part of that victim mentality. Not only will they have poor me tears, but they will complain <coughs> against Moses and Aaron. They complained against the spiritual leadership. And the whole congregation said to them, If only we had died in the land of Egypt, you can see this, negative thinking and questioning going on. Or if only we had died in this wilderness, why has the Lord brought us to this land to fall by the sword and our wives and children should become victims? There's the word right there. We're victims. 
So they're questioning God and asking God why, and I don't have any problem with that. Um, David did that in the Psalms quite a bit. But the problem with these people here is they're not wanting an answer from God. They're wanting to take the matter in their own hands. See, they're leaning on their own understanding. And they're getting angry. And that's part of the grief cycle, uh, is anger. And uh, part of that is why. Why did this have to happen? Okay. And that's going to be pretty normal. Um, but we have to look to God for that answer. And then they say, would it, it not been better for us to return to Egypt? So they said to one another, let us select a leader and return to Egypt. So they have this negative thinking, which leads to self-will, which now leads to rebellion. And that's kind of the victim mentality, in a nutshell, in Scripture, right here. Okay. Um, and, then in, and then Moses and Aaron, and I call them the prayer partners, they fell on their faces before all the assembly of the congregation of the children of Israel. So they began to pray. But Joshua, he's the counselor, the son of Nun and Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, who were among those who had spied out the land, tore their clothes. And I don't, I don't want to counsel you to tear your clothes when you're counseling, but they may think you need counseling. And they spoke to all the congregation of the children of Israel, saying, the land we pass through to spy out is an exceedingly good land. So they're trying to encourage the people. If the Lord delights in us, and that's key, that's a key phrase there. If the Lord delights in us, and actually it would be better translated since the Lord delights in us. But uh, they use that word if, which in our in our 20th uh, century, 21st century mind, that always means conditional. You know? But that's not a conditional. This isn't a conditional thing here. Um, so it really would be better translated since. Uh, because that's how that word if can be used. Um, but we don't look at it that way. But that is very important because people that struggle with a victim mentality, unfortunately, do not understand God's love for them. And that he really does delight in them. So that's when people are struggling with that, that's where I try to go. Uh, because what they people that are in the victim mentality, basically what they've done is they've taken their pain and their anger and instead of focusing on the object of who caused it, they transfer that all to God. See? Because they, in their heart, they really have a hard time believing that God really does have their best interest at heart for letting this bad thing happen to them. They just have a very difficult time of how a loving God could allow this to happen. Okay? And so they have a hard time understanding that God really does delight in them. And so that's really where I try to zero in on to try to help them overcome that. Two things, try to help them understand they're transferring their anger that really they're feeling maybe towards their spouse or their parents or whoever that hurt them, their pastor. And they're instead of they're transferring it to God. Number one, I want to try to help them see that. And second of all, I want to try to help them understand that they're struggling. The reason why they're doing that is they're struggling with understanding God's love for them and that he does delight in them. Um, 
and it says here, um, so that's kind of their counsel, that he will bring us into this land and give it to us, a land which flows with milk and honey. This is the counsel now. This is the response he's calling for. Only do not rebel against the Lord, nor fear the people of the land, for they are our bread, and their protection has departed from them, and the Lord is with us. Do not fear them. Okay, now look at their response in verse 10. This is what you see with people that get stuck in the victim mentality. And all the congregation said to stone them with stones. Okay? Stone the counselor. Okay? And what do we hear? I mean, that's what the scorning fool does, right? They're going to get a blot against their name, right? Um, and so that's why I, I stick with people that love me. I don't want to get stoned. <laughs> um, yeah. And so, uh, you know, this is kind of what's happening here. Uh, as they begin to reject the council, they're going to now attack the counselor. Okay? The ones that come alongside to try to encourage them. It says, Now the glory of the Lord appeared in the tabernacle of meeting before all the children of Israel. So now the Lord appears. Okay. And he's going to, you know, he's going to, he's going to, uh, basically bring about a judgment on the situation, on the people that are stuck in their victim mentality. It says, And the Lord said to Moses, How long will these people reject me? And how long will they not believe me with all the signs that I have performed among them? I will strike them with the pestilence and disherit them, and I will make of you a nation greater and mightier than they. So instead of receiving the blessing that they could have had, they receive what? A curse. Get a curse. And unfortunately, that's what happens with people that get stuck in the victim mentality, is their life will get worse. Um, and I don't understand all the sovereignty of God and these matters, um, but I do understand that as we allow ourselves to suffer well and suffer with fellowship of Christ's sufferings, that that does something to break us of my own self-will and my pride and leaning on my own understanding. And, and, and there's something about that, that that brings out maturity in my life and, and an understanding to help other people. And, and, and But when I, if I, as a person, become angry at God, I cut myself off from the blessing that God would want me to experience. And unfortunately, this is a big problem uh, with people that you're going to counsel. Um, and uh, there's not a whole lot you can do, to be honest with you, when people get stuck in this mentality. Really very difficult. I mean, what could Moses and Aaron do? You know? I mean, they're praying. They're on their face before God. Um, you know, uh, they're getting counsel. But God had to, to bring about uh, a discipline here. Um, so, surrendering to God. Um, verse, uh, I'm sorry, let's look at uh, page 9. Here are some examples of the worldly sorrow that people are struggling with. One is uh, denial. 
conscious or subconscious refusal to face the truth. Fantasy is escaping the real world. Um, like I said, it's easy to, as Christians sometimes to be in denial because we tend to always want to think the best of people or the situation. And that can work against us sometimes. But not that you go to the other extreme and be critical and harsh. <laughs> you know, um, see, there's a really a discernment here. But this is one of the problems that people have when they're dealing with their own problems uh, is they just don't want to really face the truth. Sometimes it's a subconscious denial. Fantasies, escaping the real world, there's a lot of things out there today um, that we can get caught up in, uh, that people can get caught up in, uh, to try to deny reality in their life. Um, you know, there's movies and fiction, and, you know, uh, there's a lot of different things out there that we can kind of go off in our minds somewhere and detach. Sports would be another one. Uh, emotional insulation, withdrawing to re avoid rejection, put a wall around our hearts, which causes us to not want to allow, uh, not wanting to allow ourselves to feel the pain that we need to find healing from. Regression, reverting back to a less threatening time. I call that the good old days uh, complex. Um, when we're in a particular situation where we're suffering, we tend to want to think about, you know, what it was like back here, and if only we were back here, things would have been better. It's kind of, you know, the people here in the Israelites, you know, we've been better off. We were back in Egypt. Okay. They were demonstrating regression there. Displacement is uh, taking out frustrations on others. Um, and when people um, are doing that, it tends to be, you know, on a scale of 1 to 10, uh, you know, it's like a 10 to them. Uh, when in all reality, the situation should be about a 2 or a 3. So whenever people are doing that type of thing, it typically shows me that there are um, unresolved issues behind that, you know, large response that need to be dealt with. Okay. Um, and so this is one of these cause and effect relationships where people begin to see that they are overreacting. You know, usually that's just a sign right there that there's something that you need to deal with. You know, where, you know, if it it's a larger than what it really needs to be. Um, and so that can be helpful to try to help break through some of that. And then uh, projection is blaming others for your problems. Um, boy, that's, that's huge. Um, and, uh, and then rationalization, making excuses uh, for poor behavior. Again, that's part. All of these could be part of that victim mentality, but but these are just some examples of uh, worldly sorrow where um, people just aren't taking responsibility. And then their godly sorrow in the life of David, Psalms 51. Um, like I said, I try to help people go through that resolving pride material. I think it's very important. I hit on several different areas of pride there. Um, Hypocrisy and form of pride and uh, spiritual uh, pride and self-rejection type pride. And then on page 12, the whole concept of taking background. Um, I've kind of taken that five 
elements that Jim Logan and uh, kind of taking off on those here. Uh, taking back ground. Giving ground is the enemy's entry point in our lives. Ground is yielded to the enemy when we hold on to sin. If we persist in sin, Satan has the time and opportunity to build a stronghold on the ground he's taken from us. Now, um, what I don't always understand is how much does a person have to do or how much do they have to sin for there to be ground given? And how much impact uh, and influence is the enemy going to have on someone's life? Um, I don't always know that. You know, um, I don't always understand the sovereignty of God in those areas. But I do know, Scripture teaches me, in Ephesians 4, 26 and 27, regarding to this issue of bitterness, uh, an unresolved bitterness, and the sin is not in the anger. Anger is emotion, but it says we can sin in our anger. The sin in anger is wrath. See? It says don't let the sun go down upon your wrath, uh, which gives place to the devil. Um, but I don't always know in some of these other areas uh, how much influence the enemy can have in a person's life. Um, it's kind of an interesting thing. Um, I counseled somebody that actually they were in New York City. Oh, about they graduated from Wheaton and had got an internship and a job. Can you imagine having an internship where you got paid, started off figures at six figures? It's a nice internship. Where do I sign up? <laughs> uh, it's a financial firm in New York City. Now it's going to cost you fifty thousand dollars just to rent an apartment down there, but you know, but, and twenty-five thousand just to give you know transportation so you can get back and forth from work and shopping. Um, but um, there's a person that went there and. Um, you know, spent the summer there, and they were actually, it was like a one-year type internship program, and uh, with the large possibility of staying with the firm after they were done, and, uh, uh, and this young person began to dabble into some things that, you know, he grew up ATI, uh, real conservative family, um, but he began to dabble in different things like, uh, you know, music and you start drinking a little bit socially, um, start dabbling in the pornography on the internet, um, you know, and, uh, but I'll tell you what, he started having all sorts of emotional difficulties. He started getting paranoid, fearful, um, and, uh, got to the point where he could hardly function. And eventually started having uh, got so controlled by fear that he ended up getting hospitalized. He couldn't function anymore. And uh, he ended up having his, his father ended up having to go pick him up, bring him back home. And then they brought him into counseling. And uh, actually, he completely shut down emotionally to the point where he was hardly talking. 
and uh, ended up getting a psych evaluation, actually was hospitalized, put on medication. And then I'm a part of this whole process from a Christian perspective and just getting to understand the issues. And it was really interesting because, you know, uh, in some people's minds, it's like, you know, he really wasn't into, like, gross sin. You know, I mean, he was just kind of dabbling with most of this stuff. It wasn't like it was a part of his everyday life or anything. But as I, we look back and evaluate the situation now, we can clearly see that there was a spirit of fear that began uh, a pattern in this young man's life uh, that eventually just kind of made him uh, inoperable, basically to function. Um, and he'd gotten to the point where he was terrified to go on the subway. He was, thought there was terrorism was going to, you know, kill him. He was afraid he was never going to see his family again, and on and on and on and on. And, uh, but as he began to work through and resolve these issues in his life, and in fact, he came and he confessed them all to his father. He confessed the pornography to his father. He confessed the drinking to his father. He confessed the music, a lot of that to me. Um, and we began, and he began, God began to open up his eyes and began to show him, you know, some of these areas, and he began to rededicate his life to Christ. And then all those emotional problems went away. In fact, the last time, in fact, I gave him an assignment to read the Freedom from Fear book by Neil Anderson. And he says, I got about a chapter through, and he says, I'm not struggling with this anymore. He says, I don't even want to read it. He says, I want to read, you know, John Piper. I'm like, oh, okay. It's kind of an intellectual to be a kid. I said, sure, go ahead. Read John Piper. That's good Good for you. Good theology. And, uh, and so... Uh, and I'm like, so I'm like checking up on him. We did a, a follow-up review uh, last week. And I'm asking, are you struggling with fear anymore? Oh, no. Not at all. And he's just telling me about how he's functioning, really doing really good. The, the psychiatrist that he went to, he's just about got him completely off the medication now that he was on. And I sit back and I look at that situation and I just scratch my head. In fact, I told the dad, I said, you know, I don't always know. We don't always know how much influence God would allow, because he's sovereign, God's sovereign, and he's all-powerful. We never understand completely how much room God will give somebody before he will try to allow the enemy to bring destruction to the point where there could be repentance in someone's life. You know? And so when it comes to this issue of ground, I mean, I mean I've seen some people, it seems like they get away with stuff for a while, um, you know, uh, in fact, one of them was a national leader here that got found out. Remember him? President of the NEA. Uh, you know, here he's the guy's had a homosexual problem his whole life. Pastors a church of 14,000 people. You know? Um, you know, why did he go on to all this place of becoming the president of the NEA and pastoring a church for 14,000 people? Go to all this to make, you know, have this huge impact. And then I, I would, in Teen Challenge, we'd have some guys that they would go through the program and then they would uh, uh, go out and um, have a relapse and they would go out drinking for the first time and they'd get pulled over by the police. <laughs> you know, one time. <laughs> you know, I don't understand it all. 
and I and I think for us to begin to try to figure it out in our in our finite minds is you know is a waste of time. <laughs> but just to understand that we as Christians, if we sin, give ground to the enemy for destruction in our lives. How much of that happens, and but ultimately God is trying to use that to bring us to a place of repentance. You know what I'm saying? Um, but uh, so it's kind of an interesting. Interesting thing to think about, I guess, because um, some people have say, "Well, if I have a lustful thought in my mind, do I give ground to Satan?" You know, how much pornography do I have to look at? How long do I have to not forgive? Uh, how much rebellion is it going to take? Um, you know, how many lies do I have to believe? <laughs> you know, um, and I don't think it takes much. First of all, but I have seen some people get away with a lot for a long period of time and just kind of scratch my head and wonder why. But there's areas to be considered when it comes to taking background. Occult involvement is huge. Usually you're going to find a lot of demonic type influence with people like that that have been involved in that stuff. Bitterness and rejection. Rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft. Sexual immorality. Um, that's a big one today. Um, uh, let me bounce something off you. You might bounce right back and stone me like Joshua was. But, um, I was reading in Proverbs the other day, and um, I want to I I want to get your feedback on this. Okay, in Proverbs chapter five. Um, it's talking about the peril of adultery. And, you know, when I was growing up, you know, um, the only way, basically, that you had access to pornography was if your parents, or your father, primarily, obviously, owned it, owned something, kept it in the house, and you just happened to stumble across it. Or you're walking down the street and you found something in somebody's garbage. Okay. As a teenage boy, that was the only access that I had to pornography. Okay. Now, times have changed, haven't they? Okay. Um, the access to that is, you know, within seconds if you have the internet. Um, in fact, you don't even have to go very far. It's your local Walgreens, other than look at the magazine rack. And, uh, you know, there are some pretty scantily dressed women and men, mind you, uh, within pages uh, picking up a magazine, right? So, as I began to read this proverb the other day, um, I really began to see some real key principles to someone find freedom from sexual immorality in the counseling that I do. And uh, one of the things that really stuck out to me, um, a lot of it stuck out to me, but one of the things that was new that stuck out to me was in um, verse 8. It says, and this is regarding the adulterous woman, or the strange woman, and it says, remove your way far from her. And the word that stuck out to me was far. And then 
do not go near the door of her house. Do not go near stuck out to me. And I thought to myself, you know, I'm, I'm pretty big on boundaries. Um, and uh, in fact, one of my counselees uh, called me Pastor Boundary one time. But um, a reverend boundary, that's what it was. And uh, but I, boundaries stuck out to me when I saw that verse. I said, that's boundaries. And I thought, you know, that's an important issue when it comes to sexual freedom here in Scripture. And I thought, you know, what was the boundary when I was a little boy? Well, the boundary was basically, you know, you've got to be 18. To go to, and you have to go to the store and buy pornography. You know? And uh, unless you happen to run across it, you know, somewhere in the garbage or in your father's, underneath your father's bed or something. And uh, I began to think about that boundary issue. And I began to think about the internet. And I began to think about Filtering systems. You know? And I don't know, I began to think about, you know, based on the principle of the scripture and applying it to our culture and time, wouldn't it be a wise thing if all men had a boundary on their computer? Wouldn't that be a wise thing? So, how many of you feel like this scripture could fit that principle? A lot of you? Yes. Yeah, that's a boundary. Because it says to be far and go, do not go near. And how near are the adulterous women on the internet? How near are they? Maybe a click away, two clicks away? Pretty near. So, anyway, I just, that really stuck out to me. I, and, uh, I just think that's uh, kind of an interesting thing in our. I, I just it's just something new, I guess, something that just kind of stuck out to me. And because uh, typically, you know, I do counsel men to do that, um, but I also know that some men are okay with this area without having that. I do know that can happen. I think it's the minority. <laughs> and uh, but anyway, I just but I was looking at scripture there, and I thought, you know, that kind of applies maybe to the internet our culture, having a boundary. So, just so I throw that out there, see what you guys thought. Yes? Yeah, I know. It's sad, isn't it? <laughs> I know. I know. It's pretty sad. You may need to find a new church, you know. Uh, yeah, I, I'll tell you. I uh, I know what you mean. I'll never, you know. Uh-huh. What, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. What, what is that? Uh Oh, I, I was on the verge of the total ruin in the midst of the assembly and congregation. <laughs> oh, boy. Yeah, I'll tell you. 
modesty in dress is not one of the strong suits of our culture either, is it? Yeah. Uh-huh. Put him on him. Hmm. <laughs> yeah, oh, I got kicked out of a church one time. Um, because, no, not for, not because of my dress, because of the people that I took to church. I was doing a service for Teen Challenge in Michigan, and I didn't realize this, but this church had been affected by the Brownsville Revival in Pensacola. Um, and last time I'd been there, they were pretty conservative. And I came in to this church service, and I was supposed to present the ministry. And I really didn't worry too much sometimes about music, because I knew that we had a choir, and whatever evil spirits were in that church, we would drive them out with our music before I would preach, okay? And so, uh, <laughs> and so, um, so I really didn't worry too much about that, and because uh, I knew we'd get rid of them. But anyway, um, but sure enough, they start dancing in this church, and I didn't realize that. I was completely surprised. And we're not talking about, you know what I would see some Pentecostal ladies when I was younger doing Holy Spirit-influenced dancing or whatever it was called. I don't know what it was, but anyway. We're talking about boogieing dancing, okay? And uh, and this lady with the spiked heels and a tight red dress started dancing in front of our Teen, teen Challenge guys. And uh, me, I mean, as soon as this whole start, thing started, the Holy Spirit just says, you got to get out of here. You know? And I'm supposed to preach. This is a church of 400 people. And... Uh, and uh, some of you guys that travel and speak, you, you're thinking, oh, man, what a position to be in. So I went up, and I, I went to the pastor who had started to dance down by the front of the, the altar, and I said, I need to talk to you. And so so I, I so we go outside the side door behind the sanctuary, and I says, Pastor, and I said in the right spirit, I says, Pastor, I said, you know, I says, this music and this dancing is really a stumbling block for our men. And they're all, you know, seeing this woman with spiked heels dancing with his red dress on. And he, he got really angry with me. It's another one of those demon influence things. He says, fine, just go ahead and leave. And he walks out back into the sanctuary. I was like, we're leaving. <laughs> and sure enough, I go into the church, grab my like the guys and my family, and we walk out of the church. So uh, after that, boy, I sure was careful about what I did. But that completely took me by surprise. Um, you know, and uh, that church had just changed, uh, seemed like overnight. <laughs> wow. Yeah, me too. Okay, let's move on here. Speaking of idolatry, um, deception and lies um, versus, it should be not ear, but fear. And then guilt, uh, pride, generational iniquities, uh, performance-based acceptance, uh, legalism. Um, giving ground is giving the enemy permission to attack me with destructive thoughts, feelings, and temptations. So these are some of the fruits of that in someone's life. 
Um, taking background is taking a verbal stand against Satan's work and ways in my life and wanting nothing to do with them anymore. Second Corinthians 4, 2, uh, part A, but have renounced the hidden things of dishonest, not walking in craftiness. Ephesians 5, 11, have, fellow, have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather reprove them, expose them. Um, let me share something else there. Um, when it comes to uh, walking in the light, Scripture has a lot to say about that. Um, and here in uh, Ephesians chapter 5, um, verse 8, it says, For you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of the Spirit is in all goodness, righteousness, and truth. Finding out what is acceptable to the Lord, and then have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of those things which are done by them in secret. But all things that are exposed are made manifest by the light, and whatever makes manifest is light. Therefore, he says, awake you who sleep, arise from the dead, and Christ will give you light. And that's one of the things that um, I will have clients pray, um, is pray and ask the Lord to reveal to them, what is in the darkness that needs to come into the light. Um, and allow God's light to shine uh, and bring... Because sometimes people, um, they, want, may they may sincerely want to find help, but sometimes they don't always re realize or understand or know what needs to be dealt with in their life. Um, and so to pray... Uh, and many times I would have them pray for the Lord to bring out of the darkness and into the light anything that would need to be resolved in their life. And you'd be amazed at some of the things that will come up. Um, and usually many times those things are really important to be addressed for that person to walk in the freedom that they need to walk in. Um, Once ground is taken back, uh, it's time to command the enemy in the name of the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ to leave and go where Jesus would send them. Uh, so that would be like a, a, a closing prayer. And so many of this can be taken through. If you, For those of you that would be new to counseling or discipleship counseling or lay counseling, a, a great tool to start off with would be the Steps to Freedom. Um, just If you go through the Steps to Freedom first yourself, um, extensively, maybe with somebody else. Uh, I went through it myself, um, and my wife went through it herself. And we felt just even going through it ourselves was beneficial. It's it's not so much the prayers; it's the heart and it's the principles, and they really make the difference. Um, uh, but but being trained in that and using that as a tool can be a very helpful helpful thing. That's kind of what we do with our interns. Um, in our ministry, is they all start off with the steps to freedom, and then they kind of branch out from there in their counseling.
and that's been very helpful. Um, and that is very much a taking background tool that can be used. Uh, tearing down strongholds. A stronghold is a belief system built on a foundation of lies. Um, doesn't necessarily always be, have to be demonic, but a demonic stronghold is a fortress Satan builds in your heart and mind. John 8:44. A demonic stronghold brings fear and hopelessness. If Satan can get you to believe the lie, that he, then he can influence your behavior. There are some false beliefs that people have just based on their environment in which they grew up and that has shaped their belief system. Okay, that's, so that's not always demonic. You can just have false beliefs, wrong programming. Um, and what I look at when I counsel, whether it be individual counseling, marital counseling, family counseling, uh, individual counseling with men, as I evaluate um, their motivational system. Because their motivational system is going to tell me a lot of what they struggle with in their mind um, and in their heart. Um, for instance, um, there's an unhealthy motivational system um, that includes uh, things like uh, fear, um, shame and guilt, anger. Those become the motivating factors within a person's life of why they do what they do. Um, the opposite of that would be love. Jesus said, if you love me, you'll obey me. Faith versus fear. Reverence for God is another one. It's healthy. Faith is another. Conviction of the Holy Spirit is another. So I'm looking and evaluating, okay, what's motivating this person? Is it fear? Is it shame and guilt? Is it anger? You know? Um, is this the type of home they've grown up in? Is this what they've been taught? Is this, is, is this why they're doing what they're doing? Or is it based on love for the Lord? Conviction of the Holy Spirit? Faith? And so trying to help people to see the difference between the two is very helpful in uh, understanding what their belief systems are, where those strongholds are. A belief system is our own personal worldview, the eyeglasses in which we see life through, to perceive what is true about myself, my life, my relationships with others, and God. We all are theologians, whether we realize it or not. Theo means God, ology means knowledge. So we all have an understanding and knowledge of God. And uh, sometimes people have very, very bad understanding of who God is. Um, and this, I think it's something that we grow in. We grow in our understanding of his love. We grow in his under, our understanding of putting our faith and trust in him. We, we grow in those things. So it's, uh, it's always being shaped. But we all have a personal worldview, and, and our belief system it can be shaped through many different aspects. It can be shaped through our family. So that's where these motivational systems many times are within a family. So fear and shame and guilt and anger, um, 
you know, that kind of becomes how we motivate people in our family. Okay. That's going to have a lot to say about their belief system, how they perceive God, uh, how they understand their Heavenly Father, how they relate with other people. Church. Yeah, the same thing in a church. Church, you know, um, my wife grew up believing when she would read the words of Jesus in her, in her Bible and they were all in red there, she always thought Jesus was angry. See? Well, every preacher that she ever heard preach as a little kid preached with an angry tone of voice. You know what I'm talking about? Okay. So she always, she believed Growing up in a church that was very performance-based, very legalistic, hellfire and brimstone, get saved every Sunday night type church, she thought that her belief system believed that Jesus was always angry. Okay. Um, society. We've talked about a little about that here even today, about how culture has impacted us, whether it be dress, all sorts of things. Uh, peers. Um, what's acceptable. With our peers, peer pressure, education will shape your belief system. Uh, past life history, what you've experienced in life, the media, all these different types of things can shape our belief system. Um, a lot of what God is doing is reprogramming us because Satan wants to program us for failure, but there needs to be a, uh, a changing of our minds. I really like the Romans 12 passage. Um, and when it comes to tearing down these strongholds, it says, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable, which is your reasonable service, and do not be conformed, squeezed into this world's mold, basically, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is the good and acceptable and perfect will of God. And Satan attempts to program people for failure. So, for instance, rejection. You take childhood rejection. Um, you know, the number one need that we all have is to be delighted in, just that we exist. Okay. And you internalize a lot of that when you're real little. Um, and you don't necessarily aren't to the place where you can objectively uh, know the difference. And so that impacts your belief system, how you feel about yourself. Um, carrier, key areas of personal attacks in our belief system, identity in Christ, priesthood of the believer, character of God, false doctrine or doctrinal imbalance. Those are some key areas of attack. Temptation defined. The essence of temptation is the enticement to have legitimate needs met through the resources of the world, the flesh, and the devil instead of Christ. Channels of temptation are the lust of the flesh, lust of the eye, and the pride of life. The power of temptation depends on the strongholds that have been developed in our minds as we have learned to live independently of God. Just think about some of the sins that you used to partake in before Christ. Or maybe even as a Christian, but you no longer do. And it's because the value... The power of that temptation was weakened because you no longer see that as something beneficial to your life. See, the pleasure of sin has run its course. You no longer see this thing as beneficial. And so that power of that sin is weakened. 
The key is to remove the lies that cause me to turn to the flesh as opposed to trusting in God to meet my needs for love, security, acceptance, and significance. The pathway to freedom is the truth. Jesus brought grace and truth. Jesus said his words are spirit and they're Jesus is the truth. Jesus told his disciples the truth brings freedom. Jesus said the Holy Spirit would guide us into the truth, and he prayed that his disciples would be sanctified by the truth, his word is truth. So that is the pathway to freedom we clearly see in Scripture, through Jesus, through the Holy Spirit, through God's word. Um, that's the pathway to freedom. Building towers of truth, building a belief system that's based on the truth of God's word. Or let the word of Christ dwell in us richly with all wisdom, teaching, admonishing one another in psalms, hymns, spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. So we have to reprogram our minds with the truth. I encourage people to build themselves up in key areas of attack, their identity in Christ, character of God, solid doctrine. Um, make a choice for truth every day. Uh, builds faith. Faith comes by hearing, by hearing the word of God. Uh, people have to become people of the Word. I even just teach them real basic, simple Bible study method uh, called ABC Bible Study. Um, started in the church that I'm a part of. Uh, a stands for application. E stands for best verse. C stands for commitment. What do you do? Well, basically you read a passage of Scripture or several, and you want to analyze what is the passage saying. Is there a verse that sticks out? Best verse. Like I've read that Proverbs 5, I don't know how many times in my life. Hundreds probably, seems like. But that one verse, that one verse stuck out to me about boundaries and sexuality. Okay. That was my best verse that day. Commitment. What's the commitment? See, how does that, how do you apply that verse? How do you apply that passage? A lot of Christians do not study their Bible that way. And so they have to learn how to do that. Um, you have to internalize the Word of God by personalizing it. It's very helpful for people to personalize the Scriptures, put their name in there, um, memorize and meditate on the Scripture, and then taking every thought captive, uh, People want to consider and believe sometimes uh, the lies and the deceptions, uh, dialogue and argue, try to reason it away, um, or we can resist those thoughts. And we have to learn to take thoughts captive. I use the, the phrase, uh, think about what you think about. A lot of people just kind of aimlessly take in every thought, you know, and just run with it. But you have to take your thoughts captive. Kind of like if SeaWorld ran out of dolphins, uh, they would have to go get a new one. And so what are they going to do? They're going to go out into the ocean, the Gulf of Mexico somewhere, and they're going to take that dolphin and they're going to trap that dolphin. They're going to take them into captivity. And that's the whole concept of this word, of this phrase that's used here in uh, 
in 2 Corinthians is we're going to take that thought captive. Um, so we're going to evaluate those thoughts, uh, confess sin if needed, resist the enemy, and then take up the armor of God. All right, I'm going to end right here on this material. There's, I know there's several other pages here. Um, we can kind of read through that. Let's do question and answer here. Saw some hands pop up here and there. Yeah. Yeah, we, we're just getting into the written application thing. We're just starting to work on something like that. Um, yeah, that's been kind of a concern. Um, oh, yeah, thank you. I'm really bad at that. Thanks for reminding me. Uh, the question is in regards to uh, filtering out uh, people that are wanting help earlier in the process, like through phone calls. I do have a, we do have an intake phone call. On that phone call, um, I will ask them uh, to share what their problem is. Um, I'll share a little bit about us. Um, what we're doing now, yeah. instead of sending out material ahead of time, what we're doing now is referring people to our website. And so they can get familiar with what we're about that way, which has been very helpful. Um, and then uh, uh, I'll have I'll see if they've been exposed to any of the types of books that would lend to help them understand what we're about. If they are, they're usually pretty ready, you know, to want to get help. If they don't have any clue of what we're about, many times I'll have them read something first, then call us back. So that's a little bit of a filter right there that they've got to, you know, they've got to put some effort, you know, towards this. Um, yeah. Oh, a written application? Right, we've we're, we're working on that actually just this last month um, of doing something like that. Um, it'd be really easy to do that for our out-of-state clients. Um, it's a little bit more difficult with the local clients uh, because there are certain churches that we work with. Um, we may have more of a condensed version for the local clients, um, but yeah, we can get. We're actually kind of what we're trying to work through how we should we do it. Should we have them fill out an application before we even schedule a call, you know, or how how to work that? I'm not sure yet how to do that. I've been thinking about it for a long time. Our board of directors, ministry committee have been they've been dialoguing about it um, as to how to do that. Um, so um, yeah, you could do that that way. Um, Sometimes, though, it's hard for me. I like to talk to people because I can. I I judge a lot on the discernment. You know, if I'm talking, it's hard to discern so much. I mean, I could get the facts written down in paper, but I still would need to talk to that person because I'm going to get more of an, an attitude of, you know, their humility or, you know, if something comes up that we could talk about. Plus, I like the phone call because it kind of breaks the ice. They get they get familiar with my spirit and. And how I'm coming across, and they can ask questions and that type of thing. Yeah. Yeah, I have, I have, um, I have done that. 
I've gone through that passage with them, and they can see themselves in that passage very clearly. Um, and I had one man from California that I did that with, and uh, boy, he repented. He saw it clearly and repented. Um, I've had some people, uh, you know, basically the, the thing that you're going to get when you start to bring that up with people is you just don't understand. That's what you're going to hear. It's like that lady that didn't want to forgive her husband. That's that was her modus. Now that's what she fed me. You know, you just don't understand. And uh, sometimes I don't understand. You know, um, but that doesn't that doesn't change what God um, wants to do in their life or that God doesn't understand. You know, and that's what I want to point them to anyway. Um, you know, um, so. Regarding the power of temptation, is that thing two things, their will or an act of God, or both? Well, that's a great theological question. Um, I, uh, I, you know, I'm kind of in the middle on that one. Um, I think it takes a little of both. Um, I think God, Billy Graham once said when act when asked about that type of Thing. He says, uh, "God jiggles our willer," um, and I think that there's. I think that's kind of a neat way to look at it in a sense that that God, I believe, I am. I'm trying to discern what is God. How as it personally as a counselor, how I'm dealing with that is, I'm trying to discern what is God doing in this person's life, and has God brought them to that place, you know, where they're wanting to make those choices. But I also, but I also believe that, you know, God, I believe that free will, and I'm kind of reformed in some ways, I believe that when it comes to salvation, God, it's all God. So I'm very reformed when it comes to salvation, okay? I don't believe there's anything that I can do to save myself. It's all a work of God, God's grace, okay? But I'm not as reformed in my theology or teaching to believe that we're where after I think your free will is really important after salvation. That's where, you know, uh, yeah, we have choices to make. So I'm not like Calvinist to the point, you know, in that in that regard. Um, but I do believe that God is very involved in that process too of still jiggling our willer, so to speak, and bringing people to that place of coming to the end of themselves. But I think it's a discernment type thing for the counselor. You're trying to help somebody. Really, I think it's important for us to understand where, where does God have this person at right now in their life? That's kind of how I look at it. Yes, sir. Right. 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 Uh-huh. <laughs> uh-huh. 
Uh-huh. <laughs> oh, you were in a church. <laughs> I know where you were. Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. Right. 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 Yeah, how to infiltrate at a grassroots level these counseling or people that need your counseling or help or discipleship. Um, yeah, I I think it's a it's a mindset. Um, I think you have to have the mindset that you're a discipler. Um, right, like right now. Okay. What? <laughs> Yeah. Well, we can just go ahead and close in prayer, and then. Right. Yeah. Yeah, we can talk about that after lunch. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for the time that you've given us this morning. Lord, I ask that you would uh, continue to to give us wisdom and uh, bless our time today as we go to lunch. In Jesus' name, amen.